the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Irreverent, over the top, and smart as a whip. This is the Rob Black Show. So let's talk asset classes. Stocks, bonds, real estate, digital currencies, baseball cards, Pokemon cards, stamps, coins. I guess you'd probably call a lot of that collectibles, commodities. Like there's different types of assets, right? So now you can't just live on stocks alone. You got to introduce some bonds at some point. Um, I'm okay with municipal bonds if that's the direction you're going to have to go. But again, I don't talk a lot of bonds because I'm not very good at them. I don't know how to rate them. And it's always interesting to me when I get an email from you that are like, hey, I've got some bonds. I'm like, who picked those for you? Because I don't know how to do it. I have to go with like a Moody's like bond rating agency and trust it. It's funny because there's some people, Mohammed El Arian, Bill Gross, Jeff Gunlock, who are very, very good at bonds. And I've never seen a service that I would want to use of theirs. But I get the buying an IOU, which is what a bond is, helping you understand your assets. A bond is issued by a government or a corporation. They say, we need $100, $100,000, $100 million, whatever the number is. We need to build a road. We need to build planes. We need to build a factory. We need to improve our hospital. And those institutions, and even like Apple is issuing bonds on, we want to service our debt through bonds, not through our cash flow. Okay. Now we know Apple's a a great company, but what if Peloton said, we want to issue bonds? You'd be like, no way, they're going to go out of business. So you see that Peloton is not really credit worthy, and yet Apple is. So Apple gets a really low interest rate because they're probably not going to default, whereas Peloton has to pay back that bond at a 6% rate versus the 1% of Apple. I'm making those numbers up 1% and 6% to show you the risk level. Same thing with cities. A bond issued by Stockton, California, which is known as the armpit of California. Yes, I want to be mayor of Stockton one day, and that's going to be my platform. Versus a Palo Alto who's considered like, oh, this is nirvana. This is economic nirvana living here. Like, we just eat red goo and it's, it gives us all the energy we need. <laughs> like, what's going on in Palo Alto? So, understanding the good and the bad of bonds is important. And just know I don't know how to do it well enough on my own. There are some bond traders at EP Wealth that I trust way more than I trust myself. Know your limitations. 
So stocks, bonds, um, real estate. Trading cards or collectibles. A mint condition Mickey Mantle baseball card sold for 12.6 million on Sunday. I can't imagine in the world why anyone would want to own a baseball card that's X amount of years old. It is blasting the record books as the most ever paid for sports memorabilia in a market that has grown exponentially more lucrative in recent years. The pandemic did something kind of cool. One of the weird side effects was we went back into our homes and said, what do we got up in the attic? I got nothing to do this weekend. And you found baseball cards and, and Pokemon cards. And it was nostalgic. And you said, I'm going to start collecting again. Let's see how much this thing's worth. And you're like, oh, I got a Mickey Mantle. Um, it's $12.6 I think I should sell that. Or a jersey worn by Diego Maradona when he scored the contentious hand of God. Goal in soccer's 1986 World Cup. $9.3 million. Who would pay $9.3 million for a jersey? Now, hold on. Let's even go crazier. I've got a son who's into baseball. And he has a Mookie Betts signed jersey. Dad, I want a Mookie Betts signed jersey. Dad, I want a Mookie Betts signed jersey. Dad, I want a Mookie Betts signed jersey. Now that he has it, he doesn't keep it in plastic. <laughs> he gets stains on it. He's not taking good care of it. So how collectible is it? loses value but what would be the best thing in the world for him is if Mookie Betts goes off to hit 100 home runs in a season and then maybe dies in a crash I know you're saying are you wishing no I'm not saying that but the longer he stays alive the more he has the potential to sign jerseys it's the same thing with painters they're not making Da Vinci's anymore they're not making Leonardo DiCaprio's anymore Okay, that was a joke. I know Leonardo DiCaprio is not a painter, but it sounded good coming out of my mouth. The longer an artist lives, the more they can, they can make. So even paintings, it's a weird thing. Jackson Pollock's dead. He'll never make another Pollock. That's considered a good thing in the world of, I have a Pollock. It's considered a bad thing in the world of, oh, he died too early. He had a drinky, drinky problem. So the Mickey Mantle card sold for $12.6 million. The last big or the biggest baseball card before that was a $7.25 million for a century-old Honus Wagner baseball card. Isn't it weird we've been collecting baseball cards for over 100 years? The heavyweight boxing belt reclaimed by Muhammad Ali during the 1974's Rumble in the Jungle sold for nearly $6.2 million. Of everything, that seems the most collectible to me because it's at least... You know, jewelry. You know, you can wear it. I know you're saying you're you're being funny, right? Kind of. So comic books. Oh, I got an email this weekend from someone on talking about comic books. And it, it, it was a lovely email, but man, did it go on. And and I, I was quite appreciative of it. And um, he was quite uh, adoring of my career in the last two decades and helping him create freedom in his financial decisions. Um, but he was also giving me advice on how to collect comic books. So I was like, yeah, just not my thing. I don't know it well. I have a collectible comic book that was almost a goof. It was a Superman number one. 
and it was original and it was kept in plastic its whole life. But do I pretend to go and say, I'm going to buy 30 comics this year. And I've been told by a listener to get two of each one. I'm not. Um, it's just worthy of note that you should really try to get to know your assets and what you have and what you don't have. And you can't live on stocks alone. You want some diversification. In the 1990s, I created a word called diversification on the radio show as a way of saying, you only want tech stocks, baby. And I made a lot of money in tech stocks in 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. And then I lost a lot of money in 2000 and 2001. I made my shift quickly. I threw away that diversification theory. I threw away, I'm smarter than Warren Buffett because he doesn't own tech stocks. I do. Beating my chest like a, a chimpanzee or a gorilla or uh, an orangutan. Who beats their chest? I don't know. One of them does probably, right? I, wasn't, I was getting all manly. And I said, diversification. You don't need to own bank stocks. You don't need to own retail. Like You can triple your money. You can quadruple your money in tech stocks. That's the way to go, baby. You can crush the market, baby. And as soon as you start saying the words baby, whether it be in a relationship or whether it be in investing, you're in trouble. I've never been good telling my loved one, I love you so much, sweet cakes, baby face. That's always a sign that like there's something wrong with me and the people that I'm hanging out with. So diversification. Now, do I want you to over-diversify? No. I don't want you to get cocky and I don't want you to get arrogant. And I want you to stay out of assets that you don't understand. I stay out of bonds. When it's time for bonds, EP Wealth will be there for me. They've got bond portfolio managers that I trust way so more than myself. When it comes to comic books, I don't know enough about them. When it comes to modern art, I know a lot about modern art. So I will go out on date to the San Jose Museum of Modern Art, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and if there's someone that's like got a show, especially at a San Jose versus San Francisco night, you're saying, why is that? It's because San Francisco's snobby. San Jose is not. So if San Francisco gives a show, it's probably going to be to like a Pollock. If San Jose gives a show, it could be to someone who's alive. Mill Rose Garcia, go check her out. Um, I think her investments in paintings are, are interesting. She does a lot of modern stuff that one day we're going to be buying where it's like Mickey Mouse with a butcher's knife cutting out the eyes of the Easter Bunny. Don't touch it until you look at it. And then try to look at it as, is this something that could sell in the future? And strangely, I believe it is. And again, take a look, decide for yourself. Um, a little bit more graphic than some people want, but it's also saying we are a culture that loves Mickey Mouse and Disneyland, and that's not the real world. And guess what? The Easter Bunny is not real either. Sorry, parents, if your kids are driving the car with you this morning. Sorry, Santa Santa doesn't exist either. Santa is a Federal Reserve member in the U.S. government trying to stimulate the economy. You can find me online at Rob Black Show, Twitter Rob Black Show, YouTube Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black. Brought to you by EP Wealth. This is the Rob Black Show. Invest in what is really important. 
Rob Black has partnered with EP Wealth Advisors. Are you concerned with financial planning, tax planning, managing your investments, or just planning your retirement? Rob Black has partnered with EP Wealth Advisors. With over $12 billion in assets under management and more than 80 financial professionals at the helm, EP has your financial future in mind. Learn more by visiting robblackshow.com. That's robblackshow.com. Welcome in to EP Wealth Advisors Informed Investor Market Update. I'm Rob Black. Joining me today is Adam Phillips, CFA, CFP, Director of Portfolio Strategy at EP Wealth. Party Pooper Rex came out last week. The Fed chairman spoke and the markets reacted, ending the summer rally just in time for Labor Day. The Nasdaq's down 22% for the year. The S&P 500 down 14 0.8%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 11%. And the riskiest asset class that I can find, Bitcoin, down 56% for the year, playing with that $20,000 level again. Sounds like a game show. Adam, the Fed came out. I called him a party pooper. What would you make of what the Federal Reserve had to say Friday in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? Well, look, I mean, there's there's no doubting the the kind of power and influence that uh, that Jay Powell has. He spoke for less than 10 minutes and was able to move the market by more than three percent. Uh, so it's uh, it's amazing. I mean, I, I think most of us and I think our video last week really touched on it, Rob. You know, most of us were prepared for a hawkish message and, and he delivered just that. You know, he he really wanted to regain control of the narrative because the market's gone a little bit of a different way. If you look at the way that the market has rebounded, you know, close to 20% off of the June lows, um, you've seen credit spreads um, narrow a little bit, uh, meaning that there's more of a risk on appetite. And he's saying, okay, that's that's great. And the economy is in, in decent shape here, but make no mistake, we're not done yet, right? Our, our job is not done. We need to focus on inflation here. And he really tried to get that message across in a relatively short amount of time. He didn't take uh, any questions. Uh, he just went up there, pre- uh, delivered some prepared remarks and uh, and kind of left it there for the, the markets and investors to to kind of digest in, in the, um, you know, the, I guess the couple hours uh, that were to, to follow before the market closed. And we obviously see, uh, we, we, we saw what happened with the market's response. But, you know, should we be surprised? I, I don't really think so. I, I think, you know, everyone going into this meeting was saying he's going to deliver a hawkish message. Um, and uh, and he did just that, right? And 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 so I, I, you know, we have talked about in recent weeks how maybe the market has gotten a little bit ahead of ahead of itself. We certainly aren't complaining when the market's going in the right direction. Um, but you always wonder, um, you know, is is market is the market overlooking um, something? You know, one of the risks that's still out there, and we are of the belief that maybe it was, and there's still. Um, you know, there's still some some questions that uh, that need to be answered. And so I think we're in the process of getting those uh, those answers right now. Um, so, you know, I'm not too surprised where we've seen, you know, in, in early morning trading here on Monday, uh, the market's been a little bit choppy. It's rebounded from its intraday lows. And so we'll see what happens here in the coming days. I would imagine that now that that Jay Powell has delivered these remarks, um, the his uh, his colleagues, at the Fed are going to be out on the charm offensive this week. Right. And trying to. Uh, maybe massage that message, but really, I, I think stick to that script of their job is not done yet. You know, inflation is still much higher than than it needs to be and, and should be, and it's going to take time for that to come to more healthy levels. And it's not going to happen, um, you know, just by gravity alone. They need to do some tightening here and and force that inflation measure down. There might be some economic pain along the way. 
Yeah, he did predict pain. That was kind of like his Mr. T Rocky three moment where he didn't say, you know, what he predicted the stock market. He didn't say pain, but it did feel like that. There's three things that can bring inflation down, higher rates, slower growth, and softer labor. Um, and all three of those can push us towards a recession. So that's what he's dealing with. He says that he's data dependent, Adam. July CPI data went from 9.1% down to 8.5% from June to July. Personal consumption went from 6.8% down to 6.3%. Housing is starting to show cracks in more speculative markets like Idaho. When is the data enough? Uh, when does the teeter-totter go, okay, prices are coming down, even if the labor market's staying uh, tight and, and healthy for the overall direction that we want it to go in long-term? Uh, it's, it's a great question because really there are so many different ways you can measure inflation and measure um, the, the health of the economy. And, you know, you're, you're seeing some signs that there, there is some tightening in these measures. You're, you know, you mentioned housing. I think that's really a great place where you can see evidence of, of higher rates. You know, it's, it's really front and center here in just about every data point we get around the housing sector. Um, but I think the one that they are really focused on uh, in, in getting inflation down uh, is, uh, is, inflation, uh, is employment. You know, and the employment market is still so strong. We have an employment report coming out uh, this Friday. So I think uh, that'll be really interesting to, to kind of wait and see what happens there. But I think part of this is because the labor market is so strong right now. It's really, um, it's really driving uh, wage wages higher, and and that just you know breeds more inflation. I think that's really what they're focused on there. You know, sure they're they're happy to see that one point eight uh, there's one point eight uh, jobs available for every unemployed person right now. That's just evidence of a really strong uh, labor market. But what that also means is that companies need to pay up for those workers to to attract that labor. And that just leads to more inflation. So this week, um, you know, tomorrow we're getting the uh, adult survey, which will show us how many job openings there are in the economy. Last time we got this number, it was around 11 million. So that's where I got that number that said there's about 1.8 job openings per unemployed individual. On Friday, we're getting the jobs number. And, uh, you know, before these these times, you know, a few years ago, pre-pandemic at least, um, it was all about this Friday jobs report, the first Friday of every month. And, and now I think the most important report we get every week, or excuse me, every month is the CPI report, you know, these measures of inflation. But still, jobs market is so important. You know, the, the economists, I would say, are expecting somewhere between 250 to 300,000 new jobs were added in the month of August. They expect the unemployment rate to remain steady or, you know, around that three and a half percent measure. I, it'll be interesting to see what the, what the data shows as well as what the market's response is. I, I think we are in one of those periods when... Um, good news uh, on the economy could actually be seen as bad news because if, the, if that jobs number comes in pretty strong, it just means that the Fed can really stay the course uh, with their hawkish policy and, and raise rates uh, you know, more than the market is hoping. I'm not sure this is scientific, but I've always believed that interest rates take about a year to play into the market. And we're only eight months into the years and the Fed's done some raising of interest rates, but I don't think we felt full effects yet. Um, but we're starting to see it, but one month doesn't make a trend. How long do you think we have to go to see the trend so ultimately like soften the Federal Reserve stance? Is it six months? Is it 12 months? Is it 18 months? Is it three years? Because I think people want you to give them a specific answer on this one. I wish I had a specific answer, you know, and, and I, I would say that the lags have arguably shortened um, okay. over over the decades. Uh, but I still think there is a lag there. You know, I, I think uh, nine months is is 
kind of average um, of, of what I read and, and the research that I see of, of what that, that policy lag is. Um, but I really think that speaks to the difficulty of what the Fed is trying to achieve here. They're, they are trying to hit a moving target, right? They don't know where inflation or, or where the economy is going to go a few months down the road when the uh, the the effects of their policy moves a couple months ago finally start to hit the economy, right? So I think that that really speaks to to the difficulty here in in managing policy, and that's why you know one of the many reasons I don't envy their job at all. Um, but you know we we do have that next policy meeting of, uh, in a few weeks. It's September twentieth and twenty first when we'll get that news about what the the next rate hike will be. Right now. Uh, the markets are pricing in about a 75% chance of a 75 basis point hike. So that would be the third 75 basis point hike in a row. If it's not 75 basis points, it's likely to be 50 basis points. You know, between now and then, we're going to get another CPI report on inflation. We're going to get another unemployment report and then all these other data points uh, in, um, in addition to that. You know, and, and I think that, you know, there's this debate between is it 50 basis points, 75 basis points? I don't really think it matters, to be honest with you. I think people people like us will talk about it because we like to nerd out on that stuff, um, and it's fascinating. But but I think what it's real, what's really important is kind of looking further further down um, and and uh, you know further out in the calendar. And what is interesting to me as I look out is that the, the bond market is actually pricing in uh, rate cuts by the Federal Reserve in the first half of next year. And so that kind of gets to your question of, um, you know, that the market's actually saying in a way that they think the economy will be in a, at, a, at a point, call it in March, April, May of next year, where it's it's softening enough that the Fed needs to actually pull back and, and loosen policy by reducing uh, interest rates in the economy, which is really interesting. And I think that speaks to that disconnect between what the Fed is trying to, the message they're trying to send to investors and what the market is actually uh, hearing, I guess, in those words or, or refuses to hear. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting because that ultimately uh, is, uh, is ultimately a driver uh, of asset prices here. I don't want to speculate, but you saying that has to kind of upset uh, Jerome Powell, because he's trying to say, I'm serious on inflation here. Stop talking about cutting rates. I'm talking about raising rates. And it shows you the dilemma he's in of trying to manage us through a recession or a soft landing. Um, and they can be quite different. One last thought that I'd like to get your um, input on. Back to school means summertime's over. We're in back to school mode. Now the calendar to me is is all about Christmas. And um, I saw a survey this morning that due to gas prices, the average American family is no longer, not, no, fewer people are living paycheck to paycheck is the right way of saying it. It's lining up okay. There's reasons to be optimistic. There's reasons to be pessimistic. Where do you fall on the next six months of people having jobs and people spending money and, and not necessarily overly contributing to inflation? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, another another good one, really. I, I think there, there's a couple of ways to view this, but I would say that generally speaking, um, consumers are still out there spending. And uh, the most recent retail sales report came in stronger than expected a couple of weeks ago because people are still out there spending on goods. And I think that bodes well for the upcoming holiday shopping season. We know consumer balance sheets are still elevated over $2 trillion in accumulated excess savings to help with those purchases. If gas prices um, continue to come down, um, then, then I, I think that ultimately just makes 
um, you know, we always say inflation is a tax, right? And and so the reversal of that seems like, you know, consumers actually are, are feeling a little bit better, might leave them more inclined to get out there and spend on these discretionary items. And I think, so I think that bodes well. I think it, it kind of makes the job of the Fed and, and Jay Powell a little bit harder because ultimately more demand only you know, only um, increases the price, the upward price pressure on things that that uh, on, on where there is relatively low inventory or still um, where goods are still being hampered by supply chain disruptions, things like that. And so, you know, I, I think it's good and it's bad. But generally speaking, as we look at holiday, uh, the holiday shopping season, I'm, I'm encouraged by the trends that I've seen in the resilience of uh, of things like retail sales savings data, obviously the employment rate and, and seeing wages go higher um, is a good thing um, if you're looking at it from the spending uh, perspective. So um, so for now, yes, I'm, I'm definitely hopeful uh, heading into this holiday shopping season. It doesn't have to be a big one, but if I weren't talking to you, um, give me something that I wouldn't know if I weren't talking to you, a little bit of a nugget of information to close out the segment. A little nugget of information? Uh, okay. Um, well, uh, let's see. I will say that uh, we are doing our parts as consumers. Uh, you mentioned that uh, school season uh, is back, school's back in session, and uh, we are, uh, you know, I, I think we're doing our job as consumers and in, in getting the kids their new wardrobe, new backpacks, and uh, you can tell that it is in full effect. And so, um, sorry, Jay Powell, that doesn't help the uh, issues on the demand side, um, but it is helping the economy and hopefully that GDP number. My nugget of information is Saturday is National Cinema Day in the United States. $3 on Saturday to get into a movie. Um, so I'm looking at free museums of cutting my costs and uh, cheaper movies, so to speak, to take the kids to. So I'm doing my part, but I'm also a little bit thrifty. Thanks very much, Adam. Um, I'm Rob Black for EP Wealth Investors Informed Investor Market Update. He's Adam Phillips. He's a CFA, CFP Director of Portfolio Strategy with EP Wealth. I'm Rob Black. The Rob Black Show is brought to you by EP Wealth. Learn more about EP's unique approach to managing wealth at robblackshow.com. So it's kind of funny. Last week, I teased during the segment that I was going to talk about escalators, and I forgot to talk about them. So I'm going to tease it again. I'm going to forget to talk about them this time on purpose. It's going to become a running gag. Will Rob ever talk about escalators? Does he like them? Does he hate them? Why is he going to talk about them? Right now, I want to talk about movie theaters. I want to talk about a five-minute retirement test. Good idea, bad idea. And I want to talk about cheap dates. This Saturday, for one day only, movie tickets will be $3 as part of a newly launched National Cinema Day to lure moviegoers during a quiet spell at the box office. The problem is there's not a lot of good movies right now. Unless you want to see DC League superhero pets. I'll pass on that one. So September 3rd, Saturday, is going to be a nationwide discount day in 3,000 theaters across America on 30,000 screens. Woo-hoo! Instead of a movie being 10 bucks, 11 bucks, 12 bucks, it's going to be $3. Now, I don't know if you have to get pre-purchased tickets is the right idea. I don't know if you want to have to get them on the day of. I don't know if you have to be six feet tall or, or seven feet tall to get the tickets. I know that Saturday is the day and I'm doing a little story on it because take your lady out on a date. Take your grandkids to a movie. It's cheaper this time. There's only 52 weeks in the year and I'm giving you one cheap date out of 52. Labor Day weekend is traditionally one of the slowest weekends in movie theaters. Ah, so that's why they're doing it. 
They want to sell popcorn and soda where they make the markup anyway. If successful, National Cinema Day could soon flood theaters with moviegoers and potentially prompt them to return in the fall. But that also brings the question of, will they make it a regular holiday? Will any good movies come out that weekend? Or if you're a, a movie producer, you're like, I'm not releasing on Labor Day weekend. Oh, and for the record, um, happy Labor Day on Monday. And <laughs> you're saying, that's a week from today. Yep. Before each showing, ticket buyers will be shown a sizzle reel of upcoming films from A24, Amazon, Disney, Focus Features, Lionsgate, Neon, Paramount, Sony, United Artists, Warner Brothers, Universal, and more. So it's really about saying, come on in for $3. We're going to let you see a movie that you don't really want to see. But we're also going to be showing you what's coming. Um, I used to work at a movie theater when I was in high school. And as a projectionist, we would splice up all the, the, the sizzle reels for movies of upcoming movies. And we just made an hour and a half of previews. <laughs> and it was kind of fun to do. Um, that and a six pack of beer just kind of made the night fly by in a smooth kind of way. And we showed it at the holiday parties kind of thing. I know you're saying holiday parties. What is this concept? After more than two years of the pandemic, movie theaters have rebounded significantly with some hits. But if you've noticed, and there's also some, there's not a lot going on in movie theaters this weekend. Top Gun, Maverick, Minions, Rise of Gru, Doctor Strange, and the Multiverse of Madness, Jurassic Park, World Dom uh, Dominion. Which I don't give a lot of reviews, but having two children who are boys, I had to see the movie, whether I wanted to or not. Not a very good movie. Um, a little too violent and too many dinosaurs for the sake of too many dinosaurs. How do you make a, a movie to top the last dinosaur movie more dinosaurs? How about better story? Anyway, organizers of National Cinema Day describe the event as a trial that could become an annual fixture. I think that's nice. You know what else is nice? Going on dates with your loved one at a cheap discount. Go to a museum the first Friday or the first Thursday for barrier residents, the SF MoMA. Free. The De Young, another great museum. First Tuesday of the month, free. On Saturdays at the De Young, it's free for families. If you have, are a Bay Area resident, so you have to bring some proof of that. Take your children to a museum on Saturday if you can. The first, every Saturday. Free. Not 80 bucks for a family of four. Free. The Legion of Honor is free on the first Tuesday of the month. I know people have jobs and everything, but it's also free for Bay Area residents every Saturday. Uh, the Conservatory of Flowers. Okay, I'm not a big flower guy, but if I was 20 years old and I didn't have much of a game in the dating world, I'm a flower guy. Golden Gate Park, free for San Francisco residents every day. Um, if you've got a, a lady friend or a male friend who happens to like science, free telescope viewing every Friday and Saturday night in Oakland at the Chabot Space and Science Center. Nice museum, by the way, especially if you have kids. Um, so anyway, I like free, and I'm not too embarrassed to talk about that. I, I like cheap. I'm not too embarrassed to talk about that. I'd rather see someone who I'm falling in love with in a used car than a new car. Because we're going to be more compatible. So let's do a quick five-minute test. On, are you ready to retire? This is not the end all be all. But in five minutes, you can kind of get an idea. 
it's a common question these days. My portfolio is down. Can I still afford to retire? We all need to retire at some point. My mother was a four-year-old who had to clean the house and start cooking for her mother because her father died. So my mom had a single mother, ultimately. Her and her sister had to do the, the job of the mother at home. Within reason. Within reason. So we all have to retire at some point. So number one in a five-minute figuring out if you're ready to face retirement. Do you have enough? Figure out your expenses. I'm really, really good with online budgeting tools. I think mint.com, M-I-N-T, is fine. Um, Just to see how much you're spending on a monthly basis. There's way more advanced versions of it. But you can start there. Um, How much money is going into your country club membership? How much money is going into your gym? You'll see a lot of data there. Like Rob has a thing in his budget called groceries. Is it groceries or is it alcohol? Because in retirement, I can cut the alcohol out because I'm not stressed and shaken. And like, I'm exaggerating that. But you get the idea. You need to know your expenses. How much are you paying in taxes, healthcare insurance, group life insurance? You need to figure out your totals for the last two years of your statements on your bank accounts. I like using mint.com, M-I-N-T.com. Because I can give access to my bank accounts to Mint. And then you go in and clean up the data. It's not perfect. Because like I said, um, local liquor store could be categorized as groceries. There could be one that it doesn't understand the categorization of it. So it just says cash. Why do you pull $200 out every week for cash? Are you paying a cleaning person? Or do you have a drug habit? Like it needs a, You need to put some of the data in there. So number one is figuring out your expenses. Number two... And you can figure out your expenses almost instantaneously with automating it with an uh, online link to your bank account. It's a read-only thing, so it's not ever going to be like people could tap into your money. Um, then you need to start thinking about an account for taxes in retirement, which means you got to kind of gross it up. And what that means is the gross amount of money you're going to need every month to end up with $10,000 in your bank account to cover your $10,000 in expenses. Because if you're taxed 20%, you really need $12,500 to make $10,000. You need to step three, subtract social security and other fixed income streams. Your spouse is getting $5,000 per month from social security. This leaves a gap of $7,500 from your $12,500. But it kind of gives you an idea of now I've just turned $12,500 monthly need into $7,500. If you have a pension or annuity, you can subtract those figures. Very few people have pensions. Most people shouldn't have annuities. But if a pension was paying you $2,000, you take the $12,500 monthly expenses, you subtract or you you gross amount it out so that you actually realize that you need $12,500. Then you subtract out Social Security and other fixed income streams, and that kind of gives you what you're going to need. Nope. Not done yet. In this day and age, we don't use the 4% rule anymore, but in a five-minute stress test of are you ready to retire, then you divide by 4%. So you've turned your $12,500 monthly expenses. You've lowered it, well, your $10,000. You've raised it to $12,500 to cover taxes. 
then you've lowered it by any income streams like social security or pensions. You're now sitting at saying that you need $5,500 a month from your investments. The next thing you do is divide that by 4% because that's how much your investment account's going to be able to strain. There's lots of different retirement income strategies. In my opinion, some are more effective than others that withdraw your savings. Um, 4% is an old test that doesn't really work all the time anymore. But if you need it 5,500, you times it by 12 to get your annual shortfall. But then you divide that by 4% and you get what you need in the nest egg. So 5,500 times 12 is 66,000. And we arrived at 5,500 by saying that you need $10,000 of monthly expenses. You add 25% onto it for taxes. Then you take out the income streams of social security and annuities. And you come up with a number of 5,500 a month. Then you times it by 12 and you have 66,000. And then you divide 66,000 by 0.04% and you see 1.65 million. That's how much you're likely going to need in the ballpark to start thinking about, can I retire in five minutes or less? It is not crazy accurate. It is not something you should do and say, Rob Black told me to do it. In fact, if anyone tells you to do it, it was Gordon Ramsay. Um, if you have to blame it on anyone, not me, push it to someone else. But that's the five minute, do you have enough to retire? Replay the segment again and again and again if you need to. It's not that hard. Start with figuring out your expenses, account for taxes, deduct social security, divide by 4% after timesing by 12%. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. Brought to you by EP Wealth. This is the Rob Black Show. Let's talk money. Let's talk investing. Seagate is cutting their first quarter revenue outlook. The company is seeing more cautious buying behavior amongst global enterprises and certain U.S. cloud customers. Believe it or not, that's good news for Wall Street. We are in the phase now where bad news is good news and good news is bad news. The jobs report on Friday, first Friday of the month. If we see more Americans have jobs and everyone's happy, that's actually bad news. Because when you have a job, you spend money. When you spend money... You buy goods. When you buy goods, you you basically contribute to potential inflationary pressures. It's a wacky world I live in. Throwing that down for you. Um, but bad news is good news. And sometimes like Seagate saying they're having problems and Snap saying they're going to cut 20% of their workforce. This is really good news. If you don't own the stock, it's really good news. If you don't know, know friends who live uh, work there, it's really good news. If you're an idealist and you're like, everyone should have a job and no one should ever lose their job, it's bad news. Wall Street and ideals don't necessarily work well together. Um, but it's also like, I, I'm not going to say, I'm going to give it the Weight Watchers analogy if I can for just a second. Not the Weight Watchers, but losing weight. When you kind of realize, I'm kind of fat. We need to do something about this. It's the Federal Reserve saying, we got too much inflation. We need to do something about this. Um, and to lose weight, you're going to have to maybe do a little exercise, maybe take a little diet down, maybe cut your intake of alcohol. What else can you do? Nothing, right? Wrong. The, no, I'm not talking diet supplements, by the way. I'm not a big fan of supplements. I don't really like the supplement or the vitamin business. They tend to take billions of dollars of Americans uh, savings and 
I've got a father-in-law who believes in crazy stuff at times, like cactus juice. <laughs> but anyway, Novor Nordesk and Eli Lilly are pharmaceuticals who basically have great uh, weight loss drugs. If every healthy American, or no, no, not healthy American, because <laughs> there's not a lot of healthy Americans. If every hefty American got treated with drugs from Lilly and Novo Nordisk, it could be huge. The annual market for these type of drugs are trillions of dollars. Insurers can't afford that. And to access the new drugs, it's highly restricted. There's plenty of room for prices to come down and still reward Novo and Lilly shareholders. The drugs will be widely used in studies that show can, they can prevent diabetes, heart disease, and other costly expenses, showing the insurance companies maybe you do want to invest in these guys. Novo Nordisk and Lilly rivals for centuries. Not centuries, for a century. <laughs> I'm watching too much Game of Thrones and House of Dragon. For centuries, we've fought each other. They originally developed um, what are called incretins to treat type 2 diabetes. The drugs also turned out to promote weight loss. Lenovo got U.S. approval last year to market the injectable drug for obesity under the brand name Wagovi. Demand was so strong that Novo stock rose 50%. So when there's a down market, I'm looking for areas that are going to grow. You should always look for areas that are going to grow. To start, and then you may go, no, 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 growth is wrong right now. But Lily is hot, hot, hot on the heels They've administered a weekly injections. It's enabling people to lose an average of 21% of their weight. While not yet approved for weight loss, it is one reason that Lilly is Wall Street's favorite drug stock. Lilly trades at 34 times earnings, so it is expensive. So I put it on a watch list. I'm watching you, Lilly. Eyes on me. One, two, three. Here's the problem. Americans are getting fatter and fatter as far as obesity numbers are going. Share of Americans considered obese has tripled since 1974. The share of 20 to 74 year olds, it's 44% of Americans. What happened? I'm kind of part to the blame. I could use, lose 10 for sure. Um, I don't do a lot on drugs, but drugs for pharmaceuticals can create blockbusters. The Avi product Humira is the current world's top-selling drug with over $20 billion in sales. These incretins for diabetes and obesity could top $50 billion. Double the number one drug in the world right now. More than double. So we're getting heavier. The average American male now weighs 200 pounds, up from 166 in 1960. The average female is 171 pounds, up from 140. There is a ripple effect that can happen here. Obesity increases the risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. Um, my father-in-law, who does the cactus juice stuff, he's not obese. He's still kicking 85 plus, 83 plus, excuse me. Taking on the weight of the world, literally, Lily and Novo Nordisk. Um, they've got two very good drugs that should get more approval. You know, they're, if you're targeting diabetes and then you're suddenly you're targeting cardiovascular disease, and then you're, you know, you're set like at some point in time, I'm going to the doctor and goes, Oh, you have high blood pressure. 
I need you to lose 20% of your body weight. Take this drug. And suddenly the heart's not beating so hard to go up steps. Researchers first took notice of what was called incretin 35 years ago when they found that a hormone called glucogen was released in the gut after food intake. So this isn't something we've been studying for a week. This is something we've been cracking the code on for 35 years. The pharmaceutical industry sought longer-lasting products that mimic injectable treatments for type 2 diabetes. Launched first in 2005, its sales were overtaken by uh, AstraZeneca's type 2 diabetes. So AstraZeneca had the market to themselves, then Novo's Victoza and Lily's Felicity started coming in. Um, I'm not going to do a whole segment on weight loss, but what I'm trying to get at to you is I'm really interested in Lily and Novo Nordisk for the long term, because longer term, we're getting fatter and fatter. Longer term, we're getting more and more obese. Do you not see that trend? Do you not see how the mind of the investor should work? Now, here's a great one. (laughs) Tell me if I'm wrong on this one. Um, California is going after fast food, and this contributes to our, our, our weight issue. But there are no right answers. Nearly 10% of McDonald's restaurants are located in California, and California legislators are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to say that you know, we're going to create a panel that could raise minimum wages up to $22 an hour for fast food chains with more than 100 locations. They would also have the authority to establish safety conditions. More government. Do we need more government? No. What do we want? Less government. Yes. We shouldn't need the government to tell us that this is bad for us. Opponents say the bill will empower fast food workers and help solve the industry problems, such as unsafe working conditions and wage theft. Who's it going to hurt? It's going to hurt the people who are lower income, middle income, who count on McDonald's for calories for getting through the day. Now, maybe it's it's good because we're going to be cutting down on obesity in theory. Maybe it's bad because people are going to go hungrier and have to pay for more expensive quality food. Aggressive wage increases are not bad in of themselves, but if it it's essential to increase restaurant workers' wages and protect their welfare, shouldn't the restaurant workers benefit? Yes, but who's going to hurt? Lower income, middle income, who eats that food? And you're going to see McDonald's respond by guess what? More automation, fewer workers. I don't know if there's a right answer or a wrong answer here. And I know being on the side of less government probably makes me sound like a capitalist pig. And I get it. I just know that sometimes Governor Newsom and the state California legislators, their heart is in the right place, but they hurt people because there's ripple effects and there's causation effects. Um, That's just my story and I'm sticking to it. I don't pretend to have all the right answers on this show. I don't pretend to be able to solve every single problem. I'm just telling you how Wall Street sees things. Amazon remained the second most popular stock with hedge funds. Someone asked me yesterday, give me five stocks that you would like to own for the long term. And I started naming them. And I said, this is not investment advice. I do not know you consult a broker advisor for taking action on any stocks mentioned. Um, I see a lot of people like, I'm scared of the market. Are you scared of Amazon? I think they'll be around. Now, are they going to make you money every year for the rest of your life? No, it's not guaranteed like that. I really like Google's Alphabet right now as a blue blue chipper. 
Google stock tumbled 22% in the second quarter. Hedge funds were net buyers of more than 117 million shares. Berkshire Hathaway would make my list of blue chip stocks. The long-term investor, they have stakes in Apple, Chevron, and Occidental Petroleum. Maybe you're like, oh, that's too much oil. It's actually too much Apple. But when you take a look at what hedge funds are buying, it gives you an idea of things you can buy. Hedge funds are considered smart money. Um, I don't like what hedge funds do in the short term. I like what hedge funds do in the long term. Here's the list of what hedge funds bought in the last 90 days. Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Visa, Berkshire Hathaway, Johnson & Johnson, MasterCard, Walt Disney, Merck, Home Depot, Bank of America, AbbVie, NVIDIA, and Pfizer. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and buy those stocks. I'm telling you those are considered blue chip stocks that should be around the day you die. Obviously, some have more risk than others because a little work rise of taking action on any stocks ever mentioned on the show. I'm Rob Black. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.